This is Passing for Normal, conversations with artists, activists, and awakeners about how they are seeding change in the world. I'm your host, Sharon Weil, and here I speak with fascinating, innovative change makers. We talk about how to make change, meet change, and how to find the courage to create change in your life and with those around you. Bringing new ideas into the mainstream, that's Passing for Normal. Hello and welcome to Passing for Normal with my guest, Tom Werner, psychotherapist, magician, and co-author of the definitive book on dreams. Where do dreams come from and what do they tell us? In their book, The Transformational Power of Dreaming, Discovering the Wishes of the Soul, Tom and co-author Stephen Larson explore the role the dreams have played throughout time and all that they awaken within us. Tom is a practicing psychotherapist. He was a professor of psychology at Burlington College for 35 years, and along with his wife, Janet Fredericks, has founded Magicians Without Borders, bringing magic and hope to refugees all over the world. Today, Tom and I are going to talk about dreams. So welcome, Tom. Well, thank you very much, Sharon. It's great to be here. Great to talk about dreams with you. I also wanted to mention that you and Janet are featured in my book, Changeability, um, based on a podcast that we did a while back. And so I'm so happy to be talking to you again on a different subject. Me too. Great. Your book, The Transformational Power of Dreaming, it's wonderful. It's comprehensive, informational, and intriguing. Um, There's so much to say, obviously, about the study of dreams and about dreams themselves. So I'm going to start out with an easy question. What is the transformational power of dreaming? (laughs) An easy one. That's right. It's an easy question, right? (laughs) Right. Well, I I think... I think uh, when I was thinking about this interview, I was thinking the phrase dreams as an oracle Mm -hmm. somehow kept coming into my mind. I don't think that's in the book at all, but it's uh, a phrase that is in the book is that there's some part of me I've come to realize that seems to know more about me than I know about myself. Mm. And that part speaks in many ways, but one of the most wonderful and regular uh, ways in which it speaks is through our dreams. And we dream, even though many people say, I don't dream, we do dream. We dream on the average of those people who have slept in dream labs and their dreams have been tracked with EEG machines, um, dream about 134 minutes a night. That's longer than, you know, most major motion pictures. (laughs) And uh, whether we remember them or not, the dreams come. And that's kind of amazing in itself. Um, So uh, that's when I think of the transformational power of dreaming is that Dreams seem to be, or let's say the psyche seems to, the waking psyche and the dreaming psyche seem to be in constant conversation with one another. And the dreams at night, if you start paying attention to them, are more often than not, not always, but more often than not, a comment, a commentary, a a corrective of the day before, and it can, if we pay attention to that, uh, it can really be truly uh, transformational. So that's my response, at, to at the least easy question. one response. There's to the many. easy question, right. So um, you said that they are a commentary on the day before. So are dreams always about the day before, or are they about the week before, the month before, seven years before? Well, um, when, when, when I said more often than not, I, I, I would say, I, 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 I couldn't give a percentage, but I could. I could say maybe <laughs> 85% of the time, it seems that in my dream life, 
I can connect my dreams to something that has happened within the last few days. Mm-hmm. It's not... Um, and uh, I think that one of the things that I do often is write down a little summary in my journal before I go to bed of the day. And I just mm. think about it um, just briefly, um, sometimes longer than others, but at least like a few sentences, the highlights of the day. And that often is, is a wonderful way to um, look at the dream the next day if I record one, if I recall one and record it. Um, what happened the day before, and to see the the correlation between them. Jung, who is very much my teacher, Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist, um, is very much my my teacher as far as dreams. And in I don't think it's it's an exaggeration to say he probably knew more about dreams and spent more time studying dreams and working with dreams his own. As a matter of fact, he once said that before he wrote his first book on dreams, he had looked at, he estimated, 67,000 dreams of his own and Mm. of his And he felt that dreams, that the purpose of the psyche was to achieve wholeness or balance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the dream for him had a kind of homeostatic um, balancing self-regulatory function that if we were like going too far in one direction of our life, our dreams would bring up the other side of things mm-hmm. to bring about, to bring about uh, balance. And that's one way in which which I um, look at dreams. Another way that um, do you have any comments on that or questions or uh, at the moment? No, I want you to keep going. Okay, so another thing that is astonishing about dreams is that, and Joseph Campbell, the great student of mythology, also. Um, a friend of, of Carl Jung's uh, once said, no matter how kind of ordinary and bland we may appear in waking life, when we fall asleep and begin to dream, we are these mythic creative mm. creatures. Mm. And uh, there's some part of us that is amazingly creative. And many artists, whether they're visual artists or poets or filmmakers uh, often kept um, detailed dream journals and kept uh, a connection with a story. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson uh, paid a lot of attention to his dreams. One night he woke up and he wakes his wife up beside and says, I just had this amazing dream. And he starts telling her this dream about this doctor who lived in this town and was very loved and was a healer and a good man. And yet at night there was some hidden part of him who later ended up being called Mr. Hyde. Mm-hmm. Uh, wake up and come out and do all these horrific, terrible uh, things. And he laid the whole story out, this dream that he had, and then went back to sleep. And Mrs. Stevenson, (laughs) I don't know what her name was, had the presence of mind to write this extraordinary dream down. And the next morning at breakfast, she said to him, Bob, or whatever she called him, she said, do you remember that dream you had last night? And he said, what dream? Mm-hmm, right. So she ends up telling him this dream, and he went up to his study and wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There are, I could tell you, hundreds of stories exactly like that from 
Ingmar Bergman's films that are almost exact transcripts mm-hmm. of dreams. Um, they feel so dreamlike. They feel absolutely. You know, yes. And it's no, it's no uh, surprise, I'm sure, to you or your listeners that Federico Fellini also got uh, many of his scenes for his films from his dreams, very dreamlike films also. Um, uh, and yet on very practical levels, um, the structure of different molecules have been dreamt up by chemists, and they would write them down, or... A really, really practical one was Arnold Palmer, the great golfer, was Mm -hmm. in a swamp. And he had a dream of a new kind of swing and a new kind of uh, handle for his golf club. And he woke up and he met with a friend, an engineer, and they designed this club. And they made it and it took him out of his slump and... He dreamt that up, you know, the shape of this club and how the handle would be and all of that. He, it came to him in a dream. Right, and so, so on the one hand, we could say that he dreamt it up. On the other hand, we could say he was given this dream. You know, that this dream... Absolutely. So where, where do dreams come from? Where do these visions come from? Another simple question. Yeah. Well, you're the expert, right? It's, it's, really, know. it's really, um, you know, uh, a mystery. I mean, well, you can, you can track it, you know, in the, in, in the parts of the brain that are firing during a dream, but that somehow doesn't really answer the question. You know, that's, um, that's the, the light bulb, you know, but the light I don't know where the light comes from, you know, but the bulb we can talk about and the filament and all of that, but what makes it, uh, you know, actually light up and where does that come from? I think it's as mysterious to me as as electricity or where where do those kind of things come from? I'm not trying to avoid the question. I just really honestly... uh, don't know the answer to that. Yes, and in a way, and in a way, maybe it doesn't matter because it is part of the substance of the mystery. And sometimes what we need to do is just drop into the mystery and, you know, and appreciate and receive the symbols and the imagination and the, you know, if we understand it too much or dissect it too much, then it becomes something else. Right. I think so. Um, one thing that that you know we do know, um, and I sort of uh, alluded to this a little bit at the beginning when when I said everybody dreams every night. My the advisor uh, of my on my PhD committee, Stanley Krippner, was a great scholar and researcher of sleep and dreams, and he got a a big grant to study dream deprivation. So he and his partner, Montague Ullman, at the Maimonides Hospital in New York, uh, would deprive people of dreaming. And he had them hooked up to EEG machines, and when they would start dreaming, he would wake them up. He had another group of people sleeping in the dream lab, and he would let them dream, and then he'd wake them up. The people who were not allowed to dream, um, who were deprived of their dreams, within three days, four days, if they walked into a emergency room, they would probably more likely than not be diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic. They were totally out of their minds, mm. and as... As, as the great psychologist Mick Jagger says <laughs> in Ruby Tuesday, if you lose your dreams, you lose your mind, um, is absolutely true. So we don't know perhaps where they come from, but we know that they're absolutely essential. And there's a chapter in the book that Stephen 
almost exclusively responsible for because he's very, very knowledgeable about neurophysiology, and it's called the dreaming brain. And it's extraordinary what goes on in the body during dreaming. For instance, during dreams, growth hormones are secreted Mm -hmm. in the body. So babies sleep a lot and dream a lot, and teenagers need to sleep and dream a lot because they're growing. And, and they're growing emotionally, physically, spiritually, in all kinds of ways. But actual growth, when, when people say, I swear my kid grew overnight, <laughs> right. um, it might be true. It might actually be true. But we do know that that which makes people grow does get secreted during the dream state, which to me is kind of an amazing amazing thing. That's Um, fascinating. And given that as a culture, you know, Americans are sleep deprived, right? Absolutely. And so what is that? So what is that doing to our, our dreaming? Yeah. And, you know, the amount of drugs and alcohol and things like that, totally. um, One of the double whammies of say alcohol and over um, excessive use of alcohol is that it not only, this was something else I wanted to say, is that the body detoxifies itself during the dream state. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, this wonderful mm-hmm. psychologist named William Dement, which is, he's got one of those names, you know, profession. <laughs> um, and Dement hooked up people while they were dreaming and he put an IV in uh, that took blood out and he took blood before and after dreams all night and he found that between the end of one dream and the beginning of another dream there was no discernible decrease in toxins in the body but after every dream the toxicity level dropped um, which is another amazing thing wow. is that maybe physically as well as well as psychologically purifying and balancing ourselves during the dream. So one of the things about alcohol is that it not only puts excessive toxins into our body, it diminishes dream time. Wow. Uh, you dream less if you're uh, intoxicated on alcohol. So it's a double kind of whammy. And a hangover might be, um, like you were just saying about sleep deprivation, it might be the result of not being able to mm-hmm. dream so as dream much as dream deprivation. Wow. So uh, as well, um, and, and with alcohol, of what I just said that William DeMint found out is that you know, the, the um, detoxification that happens during dreams, if that's diminished the dream time, so is detoxification. So that's what I meant by a double yes, whammy. Right. That's so incredible. anyhow. That's incredible. Amazing. And of course, then also the metaphor of, you know, of losing your dreams or not being able to dream, you know, that you, that you lose a certain uh, engagement with life, right? When you can't hold a dream or you don't even have a dream in front of you yeah in the in the chapter um that i was absolutely solely responsible for called archaeologist of mourning a great phrase from mm-hmm. american poet charles olson uh a what is it archaeologist of mourning a student of first things or a digger a, a digger, digger yes things, um, is, um, now I forget what I was going to say, um, what were you just talking about? Um, I was asking you about the metaphor of holding dreams, of having oh, right. a dream. In there, in that chapter, I, I say that in the back of my mind always with dream work is that double metaphoric meaning of dreaming, say, 
when Martin Luther King said, I have a, have a mm-hmm. dream, um, he wasn't talking about night dreams, um, most likely, but that same idea that somehow it begins in the dream, and, and the dream is really about hope and about unfolding yet realized parts of ourselves, parts of social justice, parts of, you know, whatever. And I, I think the dream is, if that's what you were alluding to, that kind of... Yes, absolutely, absolutely. ...bigger meaning of the dream, yeah. Because, you know, a lot of times people talk about, well, what's your vision and what's your dream and, and that that one needs a, a, a calling or a vision or a dream in order to um, compel them or propel them towards uh, enacting things in their lives. And so I guess I'm asking you, what is the relationship between nighttime dreaming and that other sense of dreaming that, that leads us uh, in a sense of purpose? Well, it's another really big question. And I, I really do, and you know, some of this certainly is because I kind of go at the world psychologically somewhat, but, but I really feel that a lot of the kind of craziness and destructiveness um, in the war, in, in the world, I was thinking of war, yeah. in the world is, is as a result of not really being self-reflective, of not looking in and looking at our dreams and resolving the kinds of unbalanced things that are in us. And I, I really do believe that, you know, the problems do begin with us, mm-hmm. you know, with individuals. And, I mean, I think one of the, I don't know whether we could get through the interview um, without talking about our current president, um, but it just feels that one of the things that strikes me so much about Donald Trump is he just seems so lacking in in self-reflection and kind of thinking about things, you know, and thinking about himself. And that just feels so important um, for leaders, for, you know, whether they're political leaders or leaders in the world of art or religion or whatever, you know, that that those leaders begin by really looking at their own lives, you know. And right. You know, leadership uh, requires and implies a certain mastery, right? You become a leader in your field because you have uh, mastered um, that field or you have mastered that body of understanding. And so again, like if you're an artist or if you're a, a writer or if you're a, a world leader. And so that really does take knowing yourself and that does take, um, uh, like you say, attending what, uh, what is within you and what comes out of you, what comes forward oh. from you. And, and I think that that's, uh, phrase or the way in which you use the word, the word dream uh, just a few minutes ago, like seeing it in, in its bigger sense, is what is your dream or what's your vision? Or they just feel like such big questions and important questions that we all ask ourselves or need to ask ourselves. Um, and how can, how can I... Uh, how can I realize these dreams and these visions, and what is it in my life that's getting in the way of me realizing my dreams? Um, and I think I think night dreams can really help us in that regard very, very much. Um, I just wanted to say something, unless you have another... Oh, I have so many questions, but please <laughs> say what you would like to say. I just, I just wanted to, uh, to say that one of the kind of transformative moments in my own understanding of dreams, and I was just talking with someone about this. I just got back from a trip, and I, I was talking with someone about 
uh, and they were just really surprised by this idea, surprised as much as I was when I first heard it, that sometimes dreams, not sometimes, almost always dreams, even for me who's looked at lots of dreams and spent lots of time thinking about dreams and talking to people about their dreams and writing this book on dreams, they still seem so mysterious and so what the heck does this mean mm-hmm. kind of feeling when I when I wake up from a dream. And one of the things that can really open up a dream and uh, almost immediately, at least for me often, give me a sense of what the dream might be trying to tell me is the idea that every part of the dream is a part of myself. Mm-hmm. And whether it's the weather in the dream or whether it's other people in the dream or a baby in the dream or a Nazi in the dream or whatever, as soon as I start owning that dream and those parts of that dream and see that these are all parts of myself that are trying somehow to live together, uh, the meaning of the dream oftentimes starts revealing itself, or the way in which I need to work with the dream starts revealing itself. So that was something that that Jung talked about uh, and was one of the very first people to come up with that idea. Now, if I have a dream about about my wife, Janet, it may in fact be about my relationship, my waking relationship with her and what's going on and whatever. And that Jung would call the objective way of looking at the dream. What's what's this saying about how Janet and I are doing in our in our life? But if I think of the Janet part of me, like who's Janet and how am I getting along with this part of myself and what is this? She's a visual artist. She's an amazingly creative person. Uh, maybe it's about that part of myself. And am I ignoring this part of myself? What's my relationship with the Janet part of myself in the dream? It. Well, here now, so I'm going to ask you a question which may take this in a little bit of a different direction. But That's some, fine. That's but fine. sometimes I will have dreams where there are people in the dream or particular persons in the dream where I really feel like I have had a visit with them when I've dreamt. It's a different quality. It's a different visual sub-visual quality. It's a different feeling when I've had a dream like that, where I feel like it could be my father. He comes to me that way, who has um, been passed for last 20 years. It could be there's another person who comes to me that way. And I really feel like I've had a real genuine exchange. And so I know that people also have the sense that they connect with one another in dreams, you know, shamanistic traditions of, of really, you know, going out into, um, other realms and, and connection. You even said in, in the book that, um, all warm blooded creatures, uh, dream. And so what, what, how is it that dreams also connect us? It's, um, so it's not just all of, you know, I feel like, is it all generated from within me? These are my symbols. These are all about aspects of my psyche. Or is there actually a place in the dream world where um, I connect with other um, creatures, entities, people? Yeah, I have, I have absolutely no doubt. And this is a very kind of indigenous idea that when we dream, our soul leaves our body and goes to that place where we're dreaming and meets those people and Mm -hmm. and whatever that means. Um, I don't know how often that happens, um, but I know it can happen. And there's a dream I tell in the book 
that absolutely changed my idea, not only about dreams, but about the nature of reality. I was asleep on an island in British Columbia, Canada, on the West Coast. And I had a dream about my Jungian analyst, a woman named Renee Nell. And she was in the dream. She's back in Connecticut at a residential treatment center that she ran and where I worked for a number of years. And there was a small building that she um, developed into a little conference center where she would teach courses and things. And she was beginning a, uh, a class on dreams, and there's a small circle of people, and she's sitting there. She's just about to begin. And Joni, the woman who did the cooking for the people at the conferences, uh, came out of the kitchen and said, Renee, excuse me, there's a phone call for you. And I'm standing there watching this. And I know, as you know in dreams sometimes, that the phone call is about the death of her brother. I also know, because I knew her, um, that he was her last living relative. And I knew that this was a really big event in her life. So Mm -hmm. she comes walking out of the kitchen. I go up to her in the dream, and I say, I'm really sorry to hear about Carlos. And I give her a big hug, and she thanks me. And she goes back to her seat and begins the, the seminar. End of dream. So I go back to the West Coast, um, and about I'm back to the East Coast about two months later, and I give her a call. And I said, why don't we get together? And she said, that would be great. Why don't we have dinner at such and such a restaurant? And we met there, and we're having dinner, and she says to me, like she did, because she was my analyst also, she said, have you had any interesting dreams lately? And I said, you know, actually, months ago, I had a dream about you, and I told her the dream. And I had my dream journal with me in a shoulder bag, and I took it out, and I told her the dream, and she said, "Um, when did you have that dream? And I said, I had it on October 15th, and she said, she takes out her appointment book, opens it up. And she says, that's exactly what was happening at that moment. Wow. That I was just about to start the seminar. Joni came out, told me. I had a phone call. It was about Carlos's death. But she said, that's amazing. She said, but what I find even more amazing is that as I was coming out of the kitchen, I was about to say to the people, I can't continue uh, with the seminar. But somewhere between my, the kitchen door and my seat, I got this strength. Mm-hmm. Now I know where that strength came from. And she got up uh, in the restaurant, came mm-hmm. over and gave me a big hug. And we ended up talking about how often might that happen at night that we go and we comfort someone um, or that we do something in our dreams that changes the world in some way and that they aren't all about us, that I wasn't just dreaming, as I had said a few minutes ago, about the Renee part of myself. This dream was something else. And so I think that I don't know how that happened, you know. Yeah. I don't know what out-of-body travel is. Um, all I know is any explanation I have for it diminishes the experience. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But just to say that that experience exists. It um, happened. It, you know? it happened. It happens. You know, people often talk. And it got talk confirmed. Yes, and it, it got, got confirmed, which a lot of times it doesn't get confirmed, it right? It doesn't Be- get confirmed because we don't have that relationship with people but about this, 
our dreams. Or... Right, but this time it did get confirmed, or when people have precognition in a dream. You know, I dreamt about this thing, and then it happened, right? Yeah. And some people have a lot of uh, fluency in that. A lot. Of, some people rely on that. They just over and over again. They will have. Uh, they will be delivered a dream that will then come true. And so, my, my, yeah, it's amazing. I know, which is why the dream world is so endlessly fascinating. And you know, one thing is it's not literal. I mean, and this is why so many artists um, of all of all sorts, you know, derives so much fertile uh, inspiration from dreams is because it's not literal, right? It's, it, it's, no. it, it's symbols, it's feelings, it's, it's, um, and, and a symbol, unlike, you know, a sign, a symbol is, you know, what they call polyvalent, you know, like it hooks in many, many different directions, you know, it can mean, it doesn't mean one thing. And that's what, like you're just saying, you know, that's what can make dreams so fertile is, and so generative is that they, they are made up of visual, symbolic language. And uh, it's a different language than, than the day world. Um, yes. Um, and it's, it's my daughter, um, my granddaughter, Sangeeta, had a very, very close relationship with my mom who died just two years ago at uh, 98 years old and they just really really loved each other and about five weeks after my mom died here at home and she stayed here for three days after she died and it was it was as wonderful as it could possibly have been and Gita was here with her, and she came in, and I said, do you want to go in and see Grant? Because she was dead already, and she said, yes, I very much want to. And she went in, and she, did. she was in there by herself, and I came walking in, and she had taken some flowers that someone had brought and just decorated my, my mother with these flowers. Oh, how beautiful. It, it was really beautiful. And about five weeks later... She had this dream where she's in bed, and it was particularly powerful. It was one of those dreams where she dreamt what she, where she was and what she was doing. She dreamt she was sleeping, and the bedroom door opened, and there was my mother. And she came over, and she said, come on with me. So the, she took Sangeeta up to the sky, mm. and introduced her to my brother who she had heard so much about but who had died um, before she arrived and um, my brother told her how he was watching over her and really liked her and um, and a whole bunch of things and then my mom almost incidentally which was kind of cute because my mom was a very very strong practicing Catholic she sort of, oh, she said, oh, yeah, and there's somebody else I want to introduce you to. And sort of in passing, she took Sangeeta over and introduced her to Jesus. Oh, great. This, <laughs> That's uh, great. That, that was great. And mm -hmm. then they were on their way. But Jim was definitely more important than Jesus, uh, apparently, to my mom and to Sangeeta. Uh -huh. in the dream. But as she and then she came down and put her, tucked her back into bed. And Gita woke up or got up out of bed after my mom went out the door, and she looked up and down the corridor, and she couldn't, couldn't see her. But as she was telling me this dream, she calls me Biba. She says, Biba, this was not a dream. Mm -hmm. And then she'd mm -hmm. go on with it, and she'd say something else, and she'd say something. And she'd say, this was not a dream, you know. Meaning this really happened, you know, even though it ha might have happened in the, quote, dream state or in, you know, whatever state. Who knows? Um, but anyhow, that seemed to be her experience also was yeah. that th this actually, quote, happened like things happen in waking life. Um, so 
It's incredible. It, it is. It is mysterious, and that whole whole world of um, you know, like creativity, like we talked about, can be really enhanced, and we can get tremendous kind of creative gifts in dreams. We can get wonderful psychological, you know, um, information and guidance and healing in a dream. We could talk a lot about that. But there's also, as you said, this old tradition, whether it's shamanic or what it, where, you know, those roots, um, where dreams seem to have this, you know, other uh, spiritual dimension that is very difficult to explain, or whether it's that out-of-body traveling. Three, uh, the dream of Renee, my analyst, and the death of her brother and me comforting her, it happened exactly at the same time. You know, it was right. 6 o'clock right. on Denman Island, and it was 9 o'clock, and the seminar was beginning in Litchfield, Connecticut. And, uh, it was, right. so, that and I don't, con- so that was a connection. That was a connection. Yeah, I mean, and I, I just feel that, um, you know, that old, I think it's Hasidic or it's, it's Kabbalistic, you know, that there are this number of people in the world, you know, 32 mm-hmm. or whatever, just people who keep it all together, you know, and... Yes. Uh, they're the ones somehow who we'd all go to just, you know, pieces if it wasn't for... And I just have a feeling that there's a whole lot of healing and work that happens in the dream world that if it didn't happen, like my, my PhD advisor there, uh, Stanley Krippner, uh, depriving people of dreams... And I said that, you know, if three or four days later they're paranoid schizophrenic um, and they just have to go back to sleep and start dreaming and they're okay again, you know. Um, Right. That how much much, uh, is the world being healed and helped and balanced as wild and awful and wicked and wounded as it looks? how much more so would it be, perhaps, if there was not this other world going on? Perhaps, you know, I yes, don't know. Well, I never actually said it that way well, before. Well, I'm glad that you've said it that way now. And this would be a perfect place to end if I didn't want to ask you one more question. Okay. <laughs> and that is, so you use the word mysterious, Um, about the whole dream realm and the process of dreams. And another word that we often use for mysterious is magic or magical. And you are a magician and you are bridging, you're bridging your worlds of psychology and philosophy and social justice through this organization that you have created called Magicians Without Borders, where you are bringing magic and hope to refugees and orphans all over the world. So I would like you to talk about that a little bit to really let our listeners know about this amazing work, but also um, to talk about it a little bit in terms of how it is that you are bridging your inner and outer life through this activity. Okay. I'll just start talking and see if um, it, uh, the bridge is constructed here. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Um, I... I had an experience. I, I was going to Eastern Europe for a meeting, and uh, I ended up in Kosovo and in some Roma refugee camps, and I did some magic. And two things really struck me um, that night when I was writing in my journal. First of all, I knew no Roma. I knew no Serbo-Croatian, almost no one, 95% of the people in my audience knew no English, and yet they all spoke magic. They all understood when things appear, when things disappear, and when things change. That's all magicians do, whether Mm -hmm. they're Chinese, Indian, 
Middle Eastern whatever is that they make things appear, disappear, and change. And I didn't have to say a word, but I had this universal language that I never knew I had, mm-hmm. which was amazing. The other thing that seemed to happen is that there was this awakening of a kind of hope, or, and I began to hear that from the UN High Commission for Refugees people that we were talking to, is I remembered uh, a line from another refugee, and he came to the United States from Hungary to escape the pogroms in the late 19th century in Hungary with his rabbi father and mother, brother and sister, and his name was Eric Weiss, and we know him as Harry Houdini, Mm -hmm. and this refugee said, you know, sometimes when I do magic, especially in difficult situations, I not, my magic not only amazes and amuses, but it awakens the hope that the impossible is possible. And so those two things, magic is a universal language, and it can awaken hope that the impossible is possible, are kind of the two pillars of Magicians Without Borders, and I came back from that experience, and I was teaching full-time at this college, and I couldn't get these refugees out of my mind, and so I went to the head of my department, and I said, I want to take a year leave of absence and start this organization called Magicians Without Borders, and he said, okay, so that leave of absence has now gone on for the last 16 years. Uh, it's a long leave of absence. <laughs> and um, we've now performed for over a million refugee mm. and orphan kids, and we have five groups of kids um, in different parts of the world that we're training to be magicians, or more importantly, we're using magic to increase their self-confidence and discipline and focus and self-esteem. And it begins... When they start doing magic, um, it starts awakening dreams in them yes. uh, that they, you know, and Wendy comes up to me in El Salvador and says, Tomas, you know, I always wanted to be a nurse, you know, and this is a woman who sold beans in the market with her mom and made a dollar twenty-five. She's now a nurse, mm-hmm. you know, oh, and um, Pedro and Maricela said, we really would love to become chefs. And they're now, they've gone to culinary school in San Salvador and um, are now chefs. And this is happening among our group of girls in India who are all daughters of sex workers from the brutal brothels in Mumbai. And um, they've been studying magic with us for seven years. And you know, a number of them are in college and training programs and different things. So anyhow, it it definitely is um, what is, what I said in the very beginning of our talk today was that Jung felt that um, the purpose of the psyche and the purpose of dreams is to bring the parts of ourselves together and. 15 years ago or 16 years ago when I had this dream in the the big sense of the word of starting an organization called Magicians Without Borders, um, those three parts of myself uh, that had been working for 30 years, the psychologist, the teacher of psychology, and the magician, it's like all three of those parts of myself came together when I'm, when I'm working with those girls, the daughters of those sex workers who grew up, unbelievably grew up sleeping under the beds in the brothels with their moms working all night on top of them. Um, when I'm working with those girls who carry a lot of emotional and psychological baggage with them, um, I feel like a psychologist, I feel like a teacher, and I feel like a a magician, you know, and um, my old Irish grandfather who was born in 
County Cork when we would have Sunday family dinners together. As he was leaving, he would always give us that Irish blessing, the, may the road rise up to meet you and may the wind be always at your back. And that um, blessing, I feel that way, you know, doing Magicians Without Borders, like all these parts of myself are cooking. Oh, so, that, that is so beautiful. And I know the work that you're doing is so important. And, um, and like you say, bringing all of you together to, yeah. to help, to help see dreams in other people. It's just fantastic. So Tom, if you would, can you please tell listeners how they can find, find you, find more about you, find your book, please tell them how they can find you. Okay. The book is, um, uh, uh, for better or worse, available, like everything on Amazon. (laughs) Yes, right. And it's uh, published by a really amazing um, publishing house called Inner Traditions, and it's called The Transformational Power of Dreaming. And um, also, if you're interested in furthering this conversation, you can go to um, Magicians Without Borders, um, our website, and there's contact information there, and you can you can write to me if you have trouble finding the book, or but I don't think you will. I mean, the book is is really uh, readily available. Yes, and yes. You can go to your local bookstore if it's not there and order it. Um, and Inner Traditions is very good about filling orders and getting told. Well, Tom, this has been a most fascinating, satisfying, um, rich conversation. I thank you so much. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, like working with a dream, uh, when it's... A dream session feels really successful to me if at the end of it we really got a lot from it, but there's also that feeling we could get so much more. Mm-hmm. I feel that way about this conversation. It could go on and on, yes. but uh, let's end it here for now. Yes, here and for now very, very much. With, with the promise to continue at another time. Okay. Thank you very much, Sharon. Thank Bye-bye. you. This has been Passing for Normal, conversations about change. To find out more about author Sharon Weil, go to SharonWeilAuthor.com. You can also find out more about the Changeability books and about all the guests featured in this podcast at that website. Large or small, go out today and make a brave change. Whether creating something new or responding to a changing world, navigating change is the new stability.